Well, good morning, everybody. We got uh, a lot to cover today. We'll be in Matthew chapter 17, and we'll be looking at three stories that appear sort of back to back to back, and each one poses their own kind of unique problem. One, because of the issue of materialism. The second one, uh, because it almost seems like an unneeded repetition of what just occurred in a previous chapter. And then the, the third one is just because if we're honest with ourselves, it's a little weird of a story. Like it starts off with the question about taxes and ends with going fishing and finding a coin in a fish's mouth. And it's not a parable. Like it's, that's just what it is. So each one poses their own sort of unique uh, hurdle for us. However, there's another issue too, is that all three of them, when you put them together as Matthew does, it sort of seems disjointed and disconnected. Um, it seems like th- there's no real relationship between the stories, but as always, what we have to realize is that the Bible knows what it's doing. Matthew, the author of this biography, knows what he's doing. Now, that, that phrase, uh, Matthew knows what he's doing, might sound strange at first because um, you might say, well, does it, isn't Matthew just uh, observing the life of Jesus and recording what happened? And in one sense, the answer to that is yes, but in another sense, no, because Matthew has content for days. He has so many stories, so many observations, so many things that he's seen that this book could be a hundred times as long. I mean, there is story after story that he could include. Uh, The author of the Gospel of John says it like this. When, When he writes his biography of the life of Jesus, he goes, there was like way more signs and miracles that Jesus did, but I'm writing these ones to you. I'm bringing these ones to your attention in order that you might believe. So in other words, Matthew is sort of curating the life of Jesus, So you might see three miracles in a row um, and they might have happened like literally back to back, like five minutes apart or the, you know, disciples and Jesus could have went, got some lunch, came back, had a chat and then someone else encounters Jesus and something occurs. But Matthew is leaving things out and inserting things to tell the story. So for example, if you were to see three miracle stories in a row that all dealt with people who were ceremonially unclean, you need to know that Matthew is putting these one, two, three, right back to back to back in order that he might reveal something to you about the nature and mission of Jesus. There might've been some things that happened in between. I mean, Matthew's with Jesus for a couple of years. So you need to trust the biblical authors when they are telling you what they're telling you. They are telling you things in a way to bring stuff to the surface, to bring extra meaning for us. Now, Today we're going to encounter uh, first a, a difficult scene that involves a demon-oppressed son. And as I mentioned, there's a hurdle right out of the gate for us, and that's our predisposition to materialism. If you're a 21st century American, you've been brought up in a culture that is saturated in materialism. And we talk about this often because it's a really, really big deal. What I mean by materialism is the belief that the material world is the only thing that exists. The physical world is the only thing that exists. Things that are real are things that are observed by your five senses or by instruments that humans make to detect certain things. But essentially, it's that which is physical, like this table, is that which is real. And what you need to know is just that's not the way most people thought throughout human history. 
Most people believed the world was much more complicated and much more complex than just material and physical explanations. They believed in spiritual realities and entities. We're sort of the minority in just this kind of presupposition that the material world is the only thing that exists. Now, oftentimes, modern people arrogantly look back at ancient people and go, oh, yeah, it's because they were dumb. You know, and, and then, you know, about 100, 200 years ago, we figured it all out. We figured out the inner mechanics of the universe, and now we know the physical world is the only thing that exists, and through our senses and observation, through the scientific method, we're going to figure everything out. It's like, ancient people weren't dumb. They thought about this probably more than the average person does in our culture. They wrestled with deep philosophical questions. What is real? What makes something real? How do you know something? How do you know that you know? And so they wrestled with these complexities. They reflected on questions like, what is that which is most real and how can I know what is most real? And so, important for us today as we approach this first story is that the biblical authors assume there are spiritual realities, there are spiritual beings, and there are spiritual entities. That the physical world is not all that there is they bring that to the table as a presupposition. Matthew 17, 14 through 16. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him, Jesus, he said, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now in a few verses, it's gonna be revealed that what's causing this is this spirit, this, this demon. And in Mark's account, his gospel account, he actually reveals that at the beginning. But already, the issue of materialism presents itself because I can tell you, a lot of what we'd call commentaries, academic takes and writings on passages like this assume something. And they assume that this boy is suffering from a physical condition that's causing seizures, something like epilepsy. And back in the day, ancient people, they didn't know about these medical conditions, and so they ascribed to medical conditions, physical problems, spiritual causes. Do you follow that? They just go, no, look, look at the conditions. He's having seizures. This this person has a medical condition that needs some, some medical attention, and these ancient people just assumed that it was spiritual because it was weird and they didn't have the explanations for it. And many people go as far as to say that the vast majority of sort of the demonic encounters and exorcisms that you see in the New Testament are actually just Jesus healing people physically, but the ancient audience didn't have the correct categories that we now do, and so they ascribed it to spiritual realities. Now, again, there's this sort of arrogant take on that that's like, (laughs) they couldn't tell the difference. They're just dumb people back in the day. And that's just not the case. Look at Matthew chapter 4. It's Matthew chapter 4, more than 10 chapters ago, he records this in verse 24. So his fame, Jesus, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Now, what do you see in that? Look at that, look at that slowly. Jesus is doing all these healings, these miracles, and, and it says they bring people to him with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. 
You see, there's categories here. They're saying they're bringing people to Jesus that are suffering from all sorts of things. Some of the people are suffering from diseases and pains. Some of them are suffering from demonic oppression. Some are having seizures, some are paralytics, and he's healing all of these different categories. So it wasn't as if they didn't know how to separate these types of things. In fact, there's a document within 100 years of when the Gospels were being written that talks about seizures and epilepsy and talks about it being a physical condition with a physical cure. That's, that's right at the same time period. These people weren't dumb. Now, did it happen in the ancient world that some people unknowingly were ascribing spiritual causes to some physical ailment? So they see some type of sickness and they go, unknowingly, okay, this is demonic type of thing. Did that stuff happen? Yes, absolutely. Ancient people oftentimes ascribed some type of spiritual demonic activity to something that was a physical ailment. But guess what? As modern people, you look around at the world and oftentimes you just think this is all physical problems rather than seeing a spiritual problem behind it. And so you need to let the Bible inform your categories and shape your presuppositions and inform your, your, the entirety of your worldview. So back to the story. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up and he's kneeling before him. He said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He, is, he has seizures and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now, let's picture what we just, what we just Learn from last week. What's the, what's the backdrop to this? It was the transfiguration. Jesus is up on the mountain and there's a voice from heaven that says, but this is my beloved son. And it's this heavenly scene. It's like the disciples see the glory of who Jesus is. It's like they are brought into the heavenly realm. The father's voice, this is my beloved son. You can't get any higher than that. Like physically they're on a mountain, but also in the narrative structure, this is the, the climax. This is God the Father. This is my son. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah are here. Jesus comes down from this heavenly scene, comes down from the mountain, and he encounters sort of the opposite scene. If one scene is a scene of heaven, this is a scene of hell. Because this is one of the worst types of evils. This isn't just a demon. This isn't just a demonic being inflicting suffering on a human. It's a demonic reality inflicting some type of suffering upon a son. And there's a father who's desperate. Now, if you're a parent, you know something intuitively. You know that the suffering of your child is worse than your own suffering, right? So this father is desperate. I, my son is his suffering. I worry about him every day. I worry about his life. He loses control of his motor skills. He falls into the fire, into the water. And I've been, I've been worried every single day. It keeps me up at night and I've been praying. And if you're a parent, you know, like if there was ever a magical button that takes away your kid's pain and transfers, transfers it to you, you'd do it in a second, right? It's like your kid falls down from a tree and he breaks his arm. There's, oh, let me just hit the button. And then his arm's like, it's better, dad. And then yours is, you do it. A good parent would not hesitate. And so you have this desperate father. And he brings his son to, to the disciples. And the disciples fail. Which is fascinating because 
Just a few chapters ago, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus actually gave the disciples authority to cast out unclean spirits. And now seven chapters later, they fail here. Jesus responds, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. There's kind of two important words here. Jesus accuses everyone pretty much. As we'll see, he doesn't accuse the father, but he accuses pretty much everyone at this scene, the the disciples and at least the crowd, that they're a faithless and twisted generation. The Greek word for faith is pistis in a noun form, in the verb it's pistuo. And this word here is a-pistis. So you can think what, what that means. It's like no faith, a is the negative, so like in English we have atheism. Theism is the belief in God. Atheism is I don't believe in God. So this is opistis, this is no faith, or unfaithful, or unbelief. But as we'll see later, our English words can sort of betray us. Because there's, there's a difference, just listen to the difference in, in what's communicated between unfaithful or unbelief. Do you feel the difference there? So often our English words can be incredibly misleading in, 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 with regards to faith. So Jesus says, this generation is opistis. They're no faith generation or a faithless generation, and they're twisted. The Greek word behind that communicates the idea of, of something that ought to be straight, but then it's, it's crooked or, or, or twisted. So it's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's not bearing a straight line. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. There's this this theme of faith that's being developed here. And it's, it's interesting because Jesus says, this generation, they're a no faith generation. And then he says, disciples, you couldn't do this because you have little faith. But I tell you, then two proverbial sayings, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move things as big as mountain. So again, this theme of faith is, is rising to the surface. And it's like right there. The Gospel of Mark tells us additional information because Jesus just says, you have little faith. And then in Mark's account, it it describes what caused that little faith. And it says, well, there wasn't prayer and fasting. This, This demon needed prayer and fasting to be casted out. So we don't know exactly what's going on. We can only sort of guess some things, but it may be that the disciples, you know, they got their authority and then they're just going out and thinking they could do this kind of in their own power, and they weren't going in prayer and in fasting, asking that they would bear the authority from the one who actually delegates authority. And so something happens because of their faith, their lack of prayer, their lack of fasting, and they fail this father. And Jesus says, like, you got to understand this. How much faith did you actually need? This much. This much. Like a, like a mustard seed. It's a proverbial saying, like, because this is another thing. It's ridiculous that we even have to say this, but people go, 
you know, in Bible times, people, you know, ancient people, they weren't very bright, and they thought the mustard seed was the smallest seed. And now we know, through our own technology and advancement, blah, 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 there's actually seeds smaller than a mustard seed. Ancient people knew that too. It's a saying. It's like, you got something in the smallest of all seeds, like the size of a mustard seed. And then the opposite of it. If you got this much faith, you can do what? You can move mountains. Mountains. The opposite end of the proverbial saying. Jesus heals the boy. And you could imagine the relief from the father. That's story number one. Story number two. It's real quick. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now, if you were here last week, and you've been tracking with us the last couple weeks, Jesus just said this type of stuff. Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is like, I gotta go to Jerusalem, I'm gonna suffer three days, rise again. And again, Matthew records, he thinks it's important that he records these words of Jesus being said a second time. And he puts it right after this story, this miraculous story. This is like a victory story. Where's the celebration, right? Nah, gotta go and suffer. It's interesting. Matthew will actually record this same type of thing again a third time later on. So first scene is this healing. The second scene is this gathering in Galilee where Jesus says, again, I need to suffer and to die. And then here's our third scene. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. Or does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when they came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, dot, 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 and we'll stop for a second. Because it's sort of interesting. Um, it seems pretty random. Again, miracle story, son of man's gonna suffer, and then Peter's walking. Quick question. Does your teacher pay the tax? And Peter's response is sort of funny. Like, I'm not even sure, I'm, I'm, I don't know this for certain, but I don't even know if Peter knows the answer. He's just like, yes. And then he goes back to the house real quick. So it'd be sort of like the IRS comes. Hey, we're the IRS. Does your teacher pay the tax? Yes. <laughs> Jesus, do we pay our taxes? And listen, how, this is how Jesus responds. This is bizarre. This is weird. What do you think, Simon? For whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, do not give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for you. Did you know this is in the Bible? Go fishing and the fish will have money in their mouth for you to pay my taxes and your taxes. So it's kind of bizarre for being honest. It's kind of bizarre. All right. To understand this, we have to sort of understand what this, this, this is a specific type of tax. It was technically referred to as the two drachma tax. 
And this was a tax that's commissioned by the high priest in Israel, and it's a collection for the temple. And what would have happened around a certain time every year is the high priest would commission people and booths to be set up in all the communities in Israel, and everyone would go pay this two drachma tax. It's basically a two days wage tax. And that would go to the upkeep of the temple and the priesthood. Now, important to note, there were exemptions. You can get out of this tax. There's basically three ways. Um, The first way is how all taxes work in monarchies. Um, The king doesn't pay the tax, nor his children or the royal family. The second one was the priest, because this tax was going to the temple and to the priesthood. So the priests were exempted. And the third exemption were people who lived off of like charity. So if you didn't have, it'd be like today, if you didn't have official income type of thing, um, where other people are just providing for you completely. So there were ways out of this. The important details are, it's a tax from the high priest, it's commissioned by the priest, and it's collected from all these people in Israel. Now, it's rooted in an obscure verse in the Old Testament. The original sort of temple tax wasn't the same exact thing that's occurring in the first century, but its roots, the purpose, all go back to the specific section. And the specific section is obscure, and it's, it's, it's bizarre as well. Exodus 30, this is what this two drachma tax is based off of. It's a long section, it's going to be two slides, but pay attention to all the details because they're important. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the sentence shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. So every time there's a census, a census to avoid judgment and plague, all of these people are supposed to give this offering, this tax. And it's called, look at that second, second line, then each shall give a ransom for his life. The, the tax, the toll, is in some sense a ransom for their life. It goes on. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are, everyone owes the same amount. Then the half shekel, when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. Verse 16, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remember before the Lord so as to make atonement for their lives. That's kind of strange, right? It's like every time you do this census, you count, you number the people, you got to do this this tax thing. And you pay it, and in some sense, it's a ransom for your life, and in some sense, it's this atonement payment. Now let's get back to Jesus' response to are we going to pay this specific type of tax? We're not talking about taxes in general. Jesus will deal with that issue later. But just this specific type of thing. Well, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Peter says, from others. 
And Jesus says, yes, of course, the sons are free. Now follow the inner logic of this. This is a temple tax. But the sons of kings, they don't, they don't pay that. They don't get charged. Now what's directly in Peter's mind? What did he just encounter several verses earlier? Remember, he's on a mountaintop, right? And he sees the glory of the Lord shining through Jesus. It's his own glory. Jesus has his own glory. Then there's a voice from heaven. And what does it say? This is my son. What's fresh in Peter's mind as he's being asked questions about the king's son? That God on his throne from heaven declared Jesus to be his son. Furthermore, what did Jesus say about the temple when he was just a boy? Are you familiar with this passage? Mary and Joseph, they lose Jesus. It's a bad. It's one thing to lose a child. Very bad if you lose a child who is also the son of God. But they find him and he's in the temple. And what does he say? Didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Hmm. So you're putting this together. What is Jesus claiming here? What is he teaching Peter? Jesus, ever since he was a boy, said, yeah, this temple, this is my father's temple. And now when he's an adult, he goes to a mountain and God, the father, the father of that temple says, this is my boy, this is my beloved son. So Jesus is telling Peter, I don't have to pay this tax. This is my father's house. This is my father's house. And the sons are free from that obligation. Furthermore, uh, when you get into it, remember I told you there was three exemptions? Jesus qualifies for all three exemptions. He's the son of the king. He's our great high priest. And according to Luke, he was living financially off the provisions of others. He and the disciples, people were covering the cost of ministry because they were out doing ministry full time. Jesus says, we're free from this. I am the son. This is my father's house, man. But then... He goes, but wait, 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 don't get too excited. Not to give an offense to them, go out fishing and there's going to be a fish and he's going to have some coins, a coin in his mouth and you can pay for both of us. Now, why does Jesus say this? He goes, don't cause an offense. The Greek word for offense here is scandalon. It means a stumbling block. So Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God. I don't have to pay a tax to the temple because this is my father's house. However, we don't want to cause a stumbling block, therefore we'll pay it. Now, what's the stumbling block? We don't know. We don't know. It could be that um, Jesus in his infinite wisdom says, we don't want to appear like we're different than all of our brothers and sisters in the Jewish community and act like we're above something that they're all having to do because we want them to listen to our message and not take up an unnecessary offense could be something like that or could be a number of things but here's here's the principle Jesus like many others in the new testament like Paul's teachings say don't create unnecessarily unnecessary stumbling blocks to cause people to to lose faith 
Now, question, does Jesus mind offending people? No, he offends people all the time, but for the right reasons. But he also says, don't create unnecessary stumbling blocks. Don't create unnecessary offenses. If you could avoid the offense, just do it if it's unnecessary. There's wisdom here. Don't be afraid to offend when it needs to be done. But also don't be like, Jesus wasn't afraid to offend people, neither am I. You just offend people all day long and think you're Christ-like. No. Sometimes you're just trying not to create an unnecessary stumbling block. Okay, now here's the extra weird part. He goes, "Mm, we're going to pay this because we don't want to cause the scandal on the stumbling block offense. Now, this is how we're going to do it, though. Go fishing with a hook, which is already weird because Peter's a commercial fisherman. The way they catch fish all throughout the New Testament is by nets. They always use nets. But this time it's like, no, we're not doing that, the commercial fishing thing. You're going to fish get a bucket from the, and sit on it on the bank, <laughs> throw out that line. And uh, you're going to catch a fish, and when you open its mouth, it's going to have a shekel. Uh, that would have been enough to pay the, the fee for Peter and for Jesus, for two, two adult men. Now, it's even more weird. It doesn't even, it doesn't even finish it. Do you follow this? It just ends right there. Like it doesn't record, and then Peter went, and to his surprise, on the fourth hour of fishing by hook and line, uh, he caught a big, well, man, it was a big Galilean catfish. And did you know there was a shuckle right in its mouth? It doesn't say any of that. It just ends. So why does, why does Matthew include this? Remember how we started. Like Matthew is telling you this. He has endless stories to tell you. Matthew has endless stories to tell you. Why, I, like out of all, like this one made the cut and you don't even include if it worked, like the ending, this is this. But as we said, you gotta you got trust like the biblical authors, okay? So in one sense, you could say Matthew included it because it's a valuable lesson about not creating unneeded stumbling blocks, which is true and that's in there and that may be the, the, the reason for it. And I can't be certain, but I think there's more going on here. When you understand that this was a temple tax for the father's house, and Jesus is saying the son doesn't need to pay because he's the son of the father. And then you understand where it comes from in Exodus, that it's this obscure passage about needing to make a payment for the ransom of life and for atonement. Then you go, what's going on here? Like, put the pieces together. Could it be that Matthew wants wants you to see that there is a debt that Peter owed to the temple, to the king of the temple, to the father's house? There's a debt that he owed, but there was a debt that Jesus did not owe, that he did not have to pay because he is the son. Nevertheless, Jesus provides this atonement payment for both of them. Do you follow this? Jesus doesn't owe it. And he doesn't have to pay Peter's payment either. Nevertheless, the ransom of his life, the payment for atonement will be covered by Jesus miraculously. 
in a fish's mouth. So you start to put all of these things together and you start to see several themes like just coming out full blast. There is faith in the Son of God is, is of utmost importance. From the transfiguration, three of the disciples see Jesus. He is the true Son. He is God's Son. And then you see the Son of God come down and encounter the demonic realm. And he shows that he's victorious over the powers and principalities. And he, he illustrates how you need to trust. You need to have faith in the Son of God that he has power over the demonic and power to provide payment for atonement. And now you, you're seeing like these three different kind of seemingly disconnected, disjointed stories come together and the theme of faith in the Son of God becoming of utmost importance. Now, when you see that though, you have to, to understand that um, we can just move on really quick and be like, oh yeah, we're supposed to have faith as Christians, faith in Jesus. But as we said, the issue of faith is complex. It's very complex. Because what exactly do we mean? If, if Matthew isn't concerned that we have faith in the Son of God, we should know what we mean by faith. Now, something interesting takes place. In Mark's gospel which is a parallel account of Matthew's gospel, so a parallel biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it includes an important piece of information in the dialogue between the father of the son who was oppressed by, demon, by a demon and Jesus. And honestly, for me, it's one of the most encouraging and powerful verses in all of scripture. And it's said by a desperate father just wanting to help his son. In Mark's account, it goes like this. And Jesus, asked, and Jesus asked his father, the boy's father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it, is often cast, it often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Now follow this, verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He cries out, I have pistis, I have faith, but help my ah pistis, my no faith. Which brings us to an incredibly important discussion about the nature of faith. And I know many of you wrestle with faith and your faith. You have doubts. You doubt God's goodness. You doubt his power. And then depending upon your personality, you start having these, these very difficult like existential questions like, I believe, but how much do I have to believe for it to count? Like, I believe, I kind of believe this much, but I also have doubts about this, this, and this. And then you go, well, do my, my doubts cross out my faith? Or is true faith only present when there's no doubts? And what if, I don't, what if I doubt his goodness or I doubt his power? And on some days you go, some days I feel like my faith is this big and on other days I feel like it's very small. Is, is, God, is God more pleased with me when my faith is bigger is when my, or when you know, my faith is smaller? Because in some sense, if my faith is smaller and I'm still living obediently, isn't that like kind of more righteous than behaving when everything's good? Do you see what I'm saying? How these faith questions can start to, to, to mess with you. And this becomes even more complicated with the issue of materialism. 
because in a, in a culture that's saturated with materialism, the question of faith basically comes down to this. When someone asks you if you're a person of faith, they are asking you the question, do you believe in God's existence? Do you believe God exists? Right? It's like, do you, well, do you believe in God? And, and you have to understand that 2,000 years ago when Jesus is out here, every single person believed in God. Everyone believed in gods or goddesses or this set of gods, this set of goddesses or gods and gods. Everyone believed in some higher spiritual power type of thing. The question was, who are you not only going to believe in, but you are going to trust in? Who are you going to chiefly value? Who are you going to to give your loyalty to? Who are you going to pledge allegiance to? And all of those kind of words in English, loyalty, trust, allegiance, are bound up in the Greek word pistis. The closest example to this we have is, is, is a marriage ceremony, right? So in a marriage ceremony, uh, you have two people coming together, and let's say the husband is going to pledge that he will be faithful to his wife. Now, that doesn't mean as he's looking into her eyes on their wedding day, I promise to intellectually affirm your existence for all the days of my life. I believe in you. I believe that you exist. You know? But how is, in in our culture, when people ask, do you believe in God? Nine times out of 10, it means, do you believe in the existence of God? You, You know, there's your wife. I believe in you. You're real. And I promise that I probably believe in good times and in bad times that you exist. Like, it doesn't work that way, right? Putting your faith in something or saying you're gonna be faithful, there's all kinds of other English words associated with that. So what does it mean to, to, to say, I have pistis, but help my opistis, my I don't, and my no faith. Well, for this man, it could have meant something as simple as he believes and he wants to believe, but honestly, his faith in that moment is shaken. Why? Because he brought the boy to the disciples who should have been able to heal him and they failed, just like the doctor before him and the doctor before them and the treatment before that and the treatment before that. And now he's looking at Jesus and he's like, everything I've tried has failed. And look at Lord, you know my heart. You know that I believe, but I also have all of these doubts right here. And what is the power of this story? What is it teaching us? How much faith did that man need to have? This much. Like this much. Like the size of a mustard seed type of faith. And maybe he didn't even need that because this much faith would move a mountain. Like how much faith did did he? And see, this is the problem. We think it's the power of our faith that moves mountains. It's the power of our faith that accomplishes something. It's not the power of our faith. It's the power of the one in whom we put our faith in. He's the strong one. He's the mighty one. He is the one on the mountain with the voice from heaven saying, this is my son, listen to him. So what do you do? when you're a person who's ridden 
with doubts and you wrestle with trusting God and, and you wrestle with, with trusting he's good or that he's powerful enough to do something. You wrestle with the idea of faith in the son of God. You do what this father did. You bring your doubts, your worries, and that little tiny mustard seed faith and you bring it to Jesus because it's not the power of what you bring. It's the power of the one in whom you approach, the power of the one in whom you put your faith in. And for him, do you wanna know what's good enough? Like this much. And so in life, man, we can get beat up, right? We can get beat up. A lot of horrible, horrible things can happen to you. And that's some of your stories. And so, you know, you go, God, I, I believe, but it's very difficult for me to trust that you're good all of the time. You know, this world, this world is brutal. Life is brutal. In one sense, it's tragedy after tragedy. And some of you know that all too well. And so when you doubt his goodness, what do you do? When you're a father who has tried everything to help your son and nothing seems to work, take that little mustard seed of faith and bring it to Jesus. Take the small amount of bread and the couple fish that you have and bring it to Jesus and say, I believe, can you work with my unbelief too? Can you help my faith grow stronger? And this is what our good Lord does. Is it's like a, there's a seed of faith and, and he's faithful to water it and to give it the nutrients that it needs. He'll grow it. It's not as if you have to, to, to begin to do like intellectual tricks in your mind. You know what I mean? Where you go, oh, I have little faith where I gotta like make myself today believe more than I actually believe so that God can be pleased with me. No, you bring what you have to your good heavenly father. He'll water, he'll fertilize, he'll give the nutrients and it'll grow. And so we prepare ourselves for communion. And this is how I want us to enter this. Because there's some of you who have, you're, you're, you have great faith. Some of you have the gift of faith. Like for the last 15 minutes, you're going, I don't even know what he's talking about. I got the gift of faith, man. And then there's some of you who just, you know, you doubt, you doubt everything. Look, go back to the marriage image. You get married and then the next day you doubt if your wife even loves you. You know what I mean? And maybe it's because your parents never loved each other and they left each other. And so you saw an example that marriage doesn't last. Everyone gives up on each other in the end. Don't you know that? And maybe add to that, every person who said they loved you in your life also left you or abandoned you. So you doubt if, if these people love you, you doubt if your wife loves you. And of course, then you project onto God, well, does God really love me? What does the man do when he's like, has anxious thoughts about if his wife still loves him? What's the good husband to do? You'd be faithful anyway. You'd be faithful. And in time you work on that. 
So whether you're a person that has great faith, your faith is through the ceiling. Your faith isn't the seed, a mustard seed. It's like a jackfruit. It's huge. Or you're here and you go, man, I'm just holding on. I got like a mustard seed of faith. That's okay. It's good enough. It's good enough for your good heavenly father. He can work with it. Trust him with what little faith you have. And in this moment, say, Lord, help my unbelief. Trust him with the little that you have and say, help me with my unbelief and watch him work. Bring the bread and the fish and watch him multiply it. Climb the mountain and watch the voice from heaven appear. Bring your faith and ask him to help with your unbelief. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's given for you. Christ is not against you. He's for you. He wants to water your faith. He wants to water the seed. He wants to grow it. Bring what you have. It's not the power that you can muster up. It's the power of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And so we remember what he did on our behalf. Let's take the bread. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the cup of the, the new covenant. It's the blood of the new covenant. How much does, does our God love us? That he would shed blood for us, that he would give his life as a ransom for us, that he would bring us atonement, that he would forgive us of our sins, that he would pay our debts. Christ is our provider. All we brought to the table was debt, but we brought it to his table in faith and we watch him work. And so, Father, we give you, as always, we give you thanks. You've been so good to us. I pray for everyone in this room that you continue to strengthen the faith of those with great faith. And right now, specifically for those who, who doubt, who wonder, who have been hurt in life again and again and again, and they bring that to the table. Lord, continue to minister to them. You're a good father. You are for us and not against us. And so, Lord, we say we believe and help us in our unbelief. Give us strength. Give us a powerful faith that's rooted in a powerful God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.